Amen. Uh, Thank you, Jonathan. So good morning. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Ecclesiastes. You'll see all of those references there in your worship folder. It'll be on the screen behind me. If you're watching at home, it'll be on the television screen in front of you as we read together from chapter one and then one verse from chapter two and then skipping all the way to the end. We're really looking at the bookends of Ecclesiastes this morning. So uh, follow along with me. Hear the word of the Lord. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It it has been already in the ages before us. And there's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. But this is the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God. And keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. It's so great to be back together, isn't it? I'm here on the floor because, as we've said, we're still working on the lights in here. And the lights shine best here. And so I, I hope you can see me well. It's better for those of you who are at home. If you're at home, we miss you. Uh, we look forward to all being able to be together soon. Uh, we really look forward to that day. But this morning, we're going to start a new series uh, from Ecclesiastes, this book that is a part of the Old Testament portion of scriptures that we call the wisdom literature. It is an extended meditation, uh, almost a stream of consciousness. It's a sermon, uh, but it's a rather long sermon about how to be wise and not a fool when it comes to life. And in the Bible, a fool can very easily be defined as someone who is out of touch with reality. They they don't know the way things work. Uh, They they can't make it through life in all its complexities because they're just not sure how all the pieces fit together. A wise person is the opposite. That is a person who's in touch with reality. They know the way everything goes together, and they have a particular competency when it comes to the most complex realities of life. That's what this book is about, becoming a person who can navigate those very complex realities uh, that life brings at us. If you like an analogy, uh, we met some new friends uh, just a couple of days ago who were telling us about a trip. They live on the west coast around Crystal River, and they're going to be taking a sailing boat down the west coast, around the Keys, all the way up the east coast of Florida, and then all the way up into New York Harbor and then back. It's going to take them 10 months. Uh, They were excited. It sounds absolutely frightening to me. I can't imagine living on a boat for 10 months, but nevertheless... But imagine if you were into that sort of thing. You spent years and years, as they have, uh, salvaging a boat, getting it ready, putting it together, building it by hand, and so forth. And then uh, you have a friend who's done the trip. 
that you're planning to do. And so he's far more experienced than you are. And so you think, you know, it might be a good idea for, to have him come over and kind of ex- inspect things. And he does. Uh, but then to your surprise and to your horror, he concludes that the boat that you've been working on for so long to take this trip you've been planning for all of these years that you're so excited about, he says the boat's not seaworthy. And then he begins to show you to make his case by taking you around to all the different parts and showing you where the water's going to get in here and there, and this is going to be a problem, and it's going to sink you. Now, would you wave him off and go on the trip anyway? Hopefully not. The wise person would not. And that's exactly what the preacher means to do with us. He takes us through all the parts of our lives and shows us how our lives, as we typically live them, are not seaworthy. Particularly in this cultural moment we're in, I think. I think there's something about this book that really speaks to these days that we're in, uh, in this post-Christian world that we live in, and in, in this time of coronaviruses and financial collapse and so forth. And then what he does is once he's kind of deconstructed for us, he shows us how to build the kind of life that can weather any storm. And there's a lot of building going on. Have you experienced this? I mean, the last few months has really stripped us to the bare bones. It's like it's taken the, the, the drywall off and we're back down to the studs and we have a chance to really rebuild. And it's a great opportunity, which is why I think it's a great chance for us to learn some things here from the preacher as we study this book together. And, and, and here's what he says. I'm going to give you an overview of the entire book this morning. In order to have a life that is seaworthy, that can weather all the storms that life throws at you, you need really to have three things. You have to first be in touch with reality. You have to really be able to to honestly look and say, this is how life really is. You have to live with a brutal honesty about the way that life comes at you. Secondly, you got to understand not only that this is how life really is, but you got to know that this life is not all there is. You got to be really girded with, with a hope, a hope of a life that is yet to come. And then thirdly, if you know that, that, that this really is how life works, this is what life is really like, this is how it really is, but this life is not all there is, then you need to learn the lesson that life then is not gain, it's gift. And that's, we're going to look at what it means to really live a holy life. So we want to look at the realities of honesty, hope, and holiness, because that really is where this book is taking us. And so we'll go through each of those individually as we walk together. But first, let's start and to say, let's talk about honesty for a minute and say, uh, if you want a life that is seaworthy, that can weather the storms, you have to be in touch with reality. You have to be brutally honest, like this preacher is here about how life really is. I mean, it's really hard. It's a hard book to read. Uh, David Gibson, who's written a book that I've just fallen in love with on, on on this book, believes, he says, the analogy he uses is, we're all playing a grown up game of pretend, like we did when we were children because it's too painful to face reality, that we are creaturely and therefore finite and not in control and we will not live forever. He writes, the book of Ecclesiastes is one of God's gifts to help us live in the real world. It is an incendiary device to explode our make-believe games and jolt us into realizing that everything is not as clean and tidy as the let's pretend world we live in suggests. And the whole Bible, but really Ecclesiastes in particular, disciples us to be people who can be honest, not schmaltzy. Do you know what that word means? About the way the world really is. Now, ironically, I want to say something that might, that might really land uh, hard on you. But I want to say, the more spiritual you are, too often, uh, the, more, the less human you become. It can happen. 
The more spiritual you become, the less human you sound. And the preacher wants us to look at the world through the lens of our humanity first and then our faith. Because salvation is about becoming more human. And so if you're not a person of faith and you're tuning in or you're here this morning, we're so glad you're here. But we've got a lot of common ground to talk about as we go through this book together, which I'm really excited about. In Christian theology, we say the world has fallen. And we mean by that that God made everything good, but all of that goodness has been ruined by sin. And sin is human rebellion against the creator. And so now, because of sin, there's a curse upon the land, just like in all the fairy tales, except it's real. And so Ecclesiastes, on the first, in the first point, is a tour of what once Eden has now become. The fallenness of the world is described in this opening chapter by one word, actually. Verse 2, look there. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's the word vanity there that's, that's mentioned five times in that one verse. And so think of Ecclesiastes as a sermon. Chapter 1, verse 2 is the text of the sermon. The rest of the chapter, uh, chapters 1 through 10, is the explanation of the, of, the, of the text. And then chapters 11 and 12 are the application. And so this verse... Verse 2 here deserves careful attention because how we understand the book is really dependent upon what the preacher means by that word there when he says that all of life is vanity. Not only vanity, vanity of vanities. Holy of holies. Vanity of vanities. It's more than just vain. It's vanity of vanities. And so some translations unfortunately use the word meaningless. Uh, as if to call, uh, cast the preacher as a, a nihilist, but the word actually means something like breath or, or wind, uh, which carries a great deal of nuance and is also with biblical precedent. So Psalm 144, verse 4 says, Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. James 4.14, of course, which may be more familiar. What is your life? You are a mist that is here one minute, appears for a little while, and then poof, it vanishes. And so vanity of vanities means that life is short. Time flies. Nothing seems to last. Beauty is fleeting, Proverbs 31 says. Because everything is. Because all of life is. Don't dare look at old photos. It takes courage to do that because as you do, at least the older you get, when you look at those old folded photos, you experience, you feel life slipping through your grasp because it's short, but it's also elusive. That's what that word means. It means that it's elusive. You can't reach out and grab the morning mist. It's a real physical thing, but you can't get your hands on it. And so life eludes our grasp. We're not able to gain control over it either by what we do or by what we know. Anybody experienced that over the last couple months? Uh, these will both become important themes later, what we do and what we know. But this is the point of the James 4 passage that I read just a minute ago. He says you can make plans, but those plans must not become a boast because ultimately you can't control the outcomes. What does a man gain, verse 3 says, by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? This is the question that we are meant to ponder as we journey through this book together in the coming weeks. And so let's just stop for one moment and consider. Think about that question. Do you see it, verse 3? What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Let's pause for just a second to reflect on that. How would you answer that question? In the rest of the verses in this opening section 
all the way to verse 11 give a preliminary answer. I mean, the applied answer to that verse, of course, is nothing. There is no gain because life is elusive. But also, vanity of vanities there means that life is repetitive. And here's where most of uh, what, what the preacher has to say here goes to this application. Verse 4, generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. In other words, time marches on and we really don't ever get anywhere. Nothing ever changes. Uh, we're, I mean, we're reliving the 1960s at the moment. And the pain that comes from the realization that so little has changed is the real pain. I mean, and this is, but this is just the way of the world, the preacher says. We just keep going around and around. And then he gives us three examples. Verse 5, the sun, which rises and then sets, only to do the same thing again and again, day after day. And then verse 6, the wind that blows around and around, returning to where it began. And then, of course, the water, verse 7, which falls from the sky into rivers, which flow into the sea, only to evaporate back into the clouds and begin the process all over again. This is what life is like. And so he says, verse 9, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there's nothing new under the sun. And therefore, uh, the, the verse before that, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing. All things are full of weariness. Is anybody tired? If so, you're not doing something wrong. You're feeling the vanity. Like Sisyphus, do you remember him? From Greek mythology, eternally rolling the stone up the mountain only to watch it fall back down and then, and then being um, damned to start the whole process all over again the next morning, day after day after day. There's so much to do. And there's so much of the same stuff to do today that we had to do yesterday. And you never arrive. And it can be exhausting. Now these are the realities we try to hide from. Preachers don't talk about this a whole lot, do they? Good preachers do, though. Because this is what life feels like. And we need somebody to speak the truth, to be honest. And that's what this man is doing here. And so this wise person that we're trying to become is honest about the way the world really works. And then adjusts expectations. We live in a cursed world that, despite all our best efforts, produces thorns and thistles at God's command. And so now it is a world that's being redeemed. Let's be sure about that. There's, that is the good news of the gospel of Jesus. The world we live in that has fallen is being redeemed, but we must not rush ahead and ignore the truth of our experience. Flannery O'Connor said that sentimentalism is arriving at the happily ever after ahead of time. It's, and I know you've never done this, but I do this all the time. It's fast forwarding uh, the movie uh, through all of the uncomfortable bad parts to get to the good parts at the end as fast as you can. But that's the way we can live our lives. The world is being redeemed, yes, but it's also fallen. And you can't have the promises of the Bible without also experiencing the pain and the struggle. You have to go through that part to get to the good stuff. So if you're going to build a life that will be able to weather the storms, you cannot be sentimental or naive. You have to face reality with brutal honesty. And it's okay. It's going to be okay if you do that. And here's why. You can do it because, secondly, there's hope. And what I've described is indeed what life is like under the sun. That's what it's really like. But this life is not all there is. If, there, if this life that we are living now is all there is, if we just are going round and around and never getting anywhere, then there's no hope. There's no meaning or morality or joy to be found. Secular materialism, which is the water we're swimming in culturally, says 
this is all there is. Don't expect anything else. The universe is an accident. We are the product of evolutionary forces, and eventually, one day, who knows when, the sun is going to go out, and all of this will cease to exist, and that will be it, and none of it will have mattered. There's no hope in any of that. There's only despair in that worldview. If life is the way that it is described in verses 3 through 11 here, and if that is all there is, then life is nothingness, literally. You should believe in nothing. It all means nothing. Now, again, that is what we believe collectively as a culture, but no one is really willing to really go that far, which is curious. And I think it means that we instinctively know what the preacher wants, us to, to, wants to teach us here. He waits all the way until the end to let the cat out of the bag. But we're going to skip ahead this morning to chapter 12, where he wraps up this sermon by saying, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God. For God will bring into the, every judgment, every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And so as soon as you speak God into the world, the outlook changes. Life under the sun can be brutal. But what that says is there's a rectification that's coming. And you won't have the strength to face it honestly unless you're being buoyed by the hope of resurrection and ultimately judge it. And the, the verses here at the end are the promise that God sees and that he will eventually fix all that is broken and return everything under the sun to its original glory. Actually, what the Bible says is it will be an even greater glory in the end. That's the Christian hope, that the world is fallen, but it is being redeemed. And we can't forget that either. And so the wise person lives both in light of the present reality and also the future hope. And so death and God and judgment, these words just by themselves are like a pin that bursts the bubbles of our unreality. Which is a very good thing. Because when viewed from the proper perspective, they relativize all that we do in our lives. Specifically, listen to this, these ultimate realities that he introduces us to finally at the end of this book are meant to change us, and here I quote, from people who want to control life for gain into people who, want, who find deep joy in receiving life as gift. Uh, David Gibson, who wrote that, contends that this is the main message of Ecclesiastes. Life is gift, not gain. And so look at the text, verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? What's the answer? Nothing. Behold, all is vanity, verse 11 of chapter 2. Striving after the wind, there's nothing to be gained under the sun. So life is not gain. But the good news is, is that it is gift. It's gift because God is there as he introduces us to him here at the end. And though we will not meet him face to face before our death... He is present and active in every moment between here and there. And so there's a certain amount of sacred, sacred cynicism on the preacher's part that's helpful for us to consider as we work through this book together. He's unsure how much headway we can actually make in the world. No matter how wise or wealthy we might be, what, what do we really accomplish? I mean, do we ever arrive at the place where we can sit back like the rich fool in Jesus' parable in Luke chapter 12 who says, I've made it, now I can relax and enjoy life. Do we really get there? Not most, most of us don't. Gain, just that word, gain there alerts us to our propensity to think, if I can get my hands on my life, through my effort and my resources, I can make it what I want it to be. But what is reality? So the wise person's in touch with reality. What is reality? Life is a vapor. A mist. 
our hands travel right through it when we try to try to clutch and grab. And the preacher's aim is to get us to lament and to look for a better way than clutching and grabbing and controlling and anxiety and ultimately despair at the futility of it all, which so many in our culture are in the grips of. It's just as Jesus said, you have to lose your life to find it. And so when you, try, when you stop trying to control your life for gain, here's the good news, then you'll finally be able to enjoy it as a gift from God. So here's another irony. When you can accept in a deep way the limits of the things of this world and embrace your own creatureliness and ultimately uh, your death and coming before God in judgment, only then will you be able to stop expecting too much from the good things in your life and start enjoying them more. So David Gibson again writes, we need to learn to pursue work, family, friendships, finances, all of these things for what they are in themselves rather than what we need them to be to make us happy. Instead of using these gifts as a means to a greater end of securing ultimate gain in the world, we take the time to live inside the gifts themselves and to see the hand of God in them. That is such good advice. He goes on to say, we try to use God's gift for gain instead of enjoying them as gift. We use work for the gain uh, for, the, for the gain of wealth or success instead of just enjoying work as its own good regardless of the outcomes that it brings. We use food and drink for the gain of physical pleasure or just fuel, but instead we should slow down, invite some friends over, break open a bottle of wine, savor the moment. We use relationships for the gain of self-image and security. And that's where all of the pressure and the dysfunction comes from. See, as long as you're trying for gain, verse 8, the eye will not be satisfied with seeing, which means you'll always be disappointed. You'll never be satisfied. In this life, all of our havings are wantings. But there's coming a time, and we see here at the end, when all of our wantings will be havings. But the best you can do until then is to stop having unrealistic expectations and make the most of whatever small moments of enjoyment come your way. That's the message of the book. It's not very spiritual, is it? <laughs> but it's really, really human. But see, then comes the surprise. And the surprise is this, that life is full of the true gain in the witness of God among ordinary things. That is where true joy is found. And so let's read those last words again at the, book, at the end of the book. This is the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God. Keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. The whole purpose or duty of a person's life is God himself. And the Bible uses the word holiness. And so we've talked about honesty and hope and now holiness. Holiness, which means to be set apart to God, to have a God-centered relationship toward all things. That is our chief end, as the Catechism says. And any deviation, even the slightest, will decrease our joy and purpose. Now, you may not yet be convinced, but the preacher's saying, he's saying, give, give me an ear. I've carried out the experiment. I've done all the research. The different hypotheses have been tested. The data is in and has been recorded, and the result is in. Fear God. That's the best kind of life. A life of holiness to God. But here's the thing. Holiness doesn't look like what you might think it looks like. And that's the third and final thing. 
that the preacher uh, wants us to learn by way of introduction to this sermon. Too much eating and too much drinking and too much of these things, of course, is a bad thing, but so is too little. And we often get caught thinking that the way of holiness is less, but that is not the wisdom of this book. As we will see, the preacher would encourage us towards a life of more, more simple enjoyments of God's gifts whenever we come across them. Now, you probably don't believe me. And, you know, I would understand that. So let me just quote a few places where he says this. Chapter 2, verse 24. Listen, just listen. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. For this is from the hand of God. We read that, we think, that can't be in the Bible. Or I'm not understanding that right. There's got to be some weird cryptic meaning to that. Because it can't mean what it means. Chapter 5, verse 19. Everyone to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them is to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. For this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy of his heart. So Zach Eswine entitled the commentary that he wrote on this book, Recovering Eden, and he explains why. He says, there's nothing better than to have a place to inhabit and a thing to do in that place and some people in that place to share it with. With God, such small things are happy and gainful. We taste again what Adam and Eve once felt in Eden before they lost their thirst for the sacred mundane and made a wreck of it all. The sacred mundane. I love that. Now listen, all of this, of course, is made possible by the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who took upon himself the curse of sin. Jesus' life of beautiful obedience to God the Father was crowned with thorns, the symbol of our God-forsakenness and curse, the ultimate futility of life. He bore that curse in death and was raised on the third day to give us the hope of resurrection as well, that what is said here is really true because Jesus is not in the grave, he's alive, and therefore we can expect that God will meet with us one day in judgment. He, the Lord Jesus, is reigning in heaven over all things, filling our lives with good things for us to enjoy by his hand. And he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. And if your faith and trust is in him, then your place in his eternal kingdom is secure. Do you know what that means? If, if, see, this is, if you have the resources that the Christian gospel gives to you, then on the one hand, you can be brutally honest about life. Because even in all of that brutality, you can see behind the curtain, so to speak, that God is in fact there. He may seem hidden, but he's there. And he's not just God for you. He's a loving father. And so you can be sure against all the physical evidence that might present itself that there's stuff happening that you can't see and it will all end up good. But on the other hand, you don't have to go through life seeking gain because you don't have to prove yourself or earn your way with God. That's not how this works. You can simply, you can be, let me say that phrase again, you can be changed from a person who wants to control life for gain into a person who can find deep joy in receiving life as a gift because it comes to you from your loving Heavenly Father. And then you can begin to gear yourself up for a hundred small celebrations every day. Because in Jesus, the Father in heaven is so predisposed toward you in love. 
that he so fills your life with good things that the wisdom of Ecclesiastes says is that the days will fly by and you won't really live in the pain of it all because God will keep you occupied with joy and all of the good that he brings into your life. That is a seaworthy life that can weather any storm. It's the way of wisdom. And it's how this book seeks to disciple us. So what a great opportunity, amen, in the coming weeks. And so pray with me if you would. So Father, what good news to know your heart for us. That we might stop clutching and grasping and striving in all uh, that uh, we do. And so missing out on the joy that you long to give to us, we confess that is too often the way we live our lives and we just stop for a moment to ponder. Now forgive us for thinking that our lives are in better hands in our hands than in yours, but here's the truth. We can let go of the hold that we have on our lives because there is a love that will never let us go. And so help us to live into that very truth this morning. And then thank you for the opportunity to celebrate it as we sing this song together. That we can let go. Because there is a love that will never let us go. Secured for us by the person and work of the Lord Jesus. In whom we seek to worship and glorify. And in whose name we pray this morning. Amen. Oh, my favorite line in that song is when it says, there's a joy that's seeking us through the pain. Isn't that great? Uh, and and, and the, he says, and I dare not close my heart. I mean, what an act of holy resistance and subversion to sing a song like that at a time, like we're going through right now, where we can't be together the way we want to, where, we, where most many of us have masks on and there's so much disruption and yet to say, uh, there's still a thousand celebrations that come my way every day because the, the world is being ruled by a loving father. Only people of faith can sing that song. And so you see, it's, it's, it's the kind of life that we need to live as an evangelistic witness to the reality of the world that we live in, even in the face of the things we've been going through. Amen, you with me? And so that is not only the wise thing to do, uh, but, it, but it's the good thing to do. And so I pray. Uh, that your heart will be encouraged towards that end. Uh, with these words here at the end, yet again, this benediction that God uh, gives to us as he sends us into the world with the promise that he goes with us. And so, uh, the witness of God in ordinary things is a life of true gain. Receive these words. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Thanks for coming today and being with us. God bless you. Please let the back of the room be dismissed first, and then we'll dismiss so that we don't all crowd together. Uh, feel free to catch up with one another outside, but we need for you to do that so we can get the room ready for the next service, okay? God bless you.